You're listening to the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Amir, one of the PhD students of the program. In many ways, the campaign trail of the 44th federal election has been a campaign unlike any other in Canadian history. Called amidst the resurgence of COVID-19 infection rates due in large part to the Delta variant, the campaign has seen the Liberal and Conservative parties of Justin Trudeau and Aaron O'Toole respectively at a dead heat since the drop of the writ, with the only predictable outcome being that the next government of Canada will likely be a minority one. But the most pronounced aspect of the campaign may not be its potential outcome, but the ways in which public discontent has been mobilized and fragmented and even violent ways, targeting candidates, their staff, and in particular the Prime Minister himself along the campaign trail. As the campaign reached its final days and election day loomed just around the corner, we spoke with Professor Jonathan Malloy about the campaign and the prospects ahead for the 44th Parliament of Canada. Dr. Malloy is a professor with Carlton's Department of Political Science, specializing in Canadian political institutions and religion and politics. He's also the current bell chair for the study of Canadian parliamentary democracy and the faculty of public affairs associate dean of research and international. Professor Malloy, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm glad to be here. So in many ways, the election that we're currently in the midst of is one that few really wanted, you know, given the pandemic and the continued threat of COVID-19, in particular the Delta variant. And to open up the conversation we're going to have here today, I'm interested to hear whether there are precedents in Canadian history for elections in times of emergency. Have we seen politics play out in times of crisis in the past? And how would the 44th Canadian federal election campaign compare to emergency situations in the past? Yeah, it's a great question. And I mean, there's no real precedent for this. Uh, you can think back to, you know, we did have elections during both the World War Wars. Uh, we had two elections during the Great Depression as well. So those can be seen as sort of, you know, the greatest emergencies that Canada has gone through historically. Uh, but if you look, and this is work backwards here, if you look at like the 1940 election during World War II, that was right at the beginning of the war, and it was not really that influence per se. The Great Depression elections, of course, were, you know, there was the country was very seized with this crisis, but, you know, it didn't necessarily affect the election uh, per se. That, of course, to the election of the throwing out of King in favor of Richard Bennett in, in 1930, and then King came back in 1935. Um, the one, the closest would be 1917, where uh, there was, of course, a, a national election uh, during World War One. And it was a crisis, but argu arguably the, you know, the, 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 um, the election uh, precipitated some of the crisis because the issue was conscription. And so the election was really fought over conscription uh, and, of course, badly split the country with uh, the, the Liberal Party in particular just pretty much splitting between Quebec and the rest of the country. So it ended up with a Quebec rump and uh, Borden's conservatives swung the got the rest of the country. But in that case, really, sort of the, the war, the, the conscription was a specific aspect of, of the election, and it, it really drove the election more than anything else. In this case, uh, we've got a very different type of election where you know the parties the parties differ a bit, obviously on COVID responses, but with the exception of the People's Party, there's no giant difference. There's differences about vaccinated candidates, things like that. Um, but instead, it's the conditions of the election that we elections Canada has to has to be very careful about social distancing, about where it can have uh, election boxes. A lot of people are doing mail-in votes so that they don't have to go to a public place, etc. So, I mean, there's really nothing comparable here. Where you know, the I would say, I would say, you can argue with me. I would say that the election itself is not really 
revolving around the pandemic directly. There's obviously lots of things churning and coming out of it and stuff there. It's the administration of the election that is is where the pandemic really, that's the real sort of emergency situation. And we've had nothing like that in the past. You go back to the world wars and depression. There was, no one was, was worried about, you know, about ballot boxes and locations and social distancing and stuff like that. So this this is really unprecedented. As with so many things with COVID-19, really, we've never seen anything like this before. Yeah, it's really caused a change in terms of approach. I know when I went to the advanced polls, I took my mother on, on Monday as well. And like, you know, you get there, it's the first time I'd seen a lineup going around a building on an advanced poll, but it was solely just social distancing and attempting yeah. to, you know, stagger how many people they let in. So two years ago during the federal election, I actually recorded my first episode of this podcast with a mutual friend and colleague of ours, Dr. Paul Thomas. And for Paul, the biggest takeaway of the 2019 election was simply that it again proved that campaigns matter. Um, we're now at the cusp of election night in 2021. And I was wondering what you thought of the dynamics of the Canadian party system in the campaign trail of 2021. How have things changed from the drop of the red a few weeks ago to now? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, I'm going to modify a bit what Paul said here, because I say that camp, campaigns matter some of the time. Uh, but I mean, in, I'd say like, I, they matter all the time, but sometimes you don't actually see a lot of change. And like in some elections, I think particularly of 2015, when Justin Trudeau started off in third place and, and, and then won, won um, sometimes there's a lot of change uh, over, over time in campaigns. In this 2021 election, We've seen very little change. The polls have not greatly moved. Um, the, and you know, there was some, I admit, I sort of was a little curious why the Liberals called the election in the first place when they certainly didn't have much of a, of a lead over the Conservatives. And you know, they've, they've been going back and forth. I mean, I think the elections, are, uh, the, all the pollsters really are finding that it's fairly neck and neck. Uh, most everything's within the margin of error. Um, that we, we can see a rise in the People's Party. That's the one sort of significant change I think we see there. Uh, and perhaps in, in regionally, there's some ups and downs, certainly blocked by Guam, Quebec, et cetera, there. But I mean, I see that what's interesting here, I think, is that despite a great deal of work by all the parties, particularly the two front-running parties, um, to, to campaign, not much has actually changed in the campaign in terms of, in terms of polls and stuff. There's, there's, it's essentially a, a stalemate in, in that sense there. So I think the, you know, the campaigns always matter. But, but sometimes I think the, the campaigns don't actually have an effect because they essentially cancel each other out, which is what we're really seeing in this case. It, it's a race where we don't see a, a, great deal, a great deal of change. But the, the campaigns have been adapting. It's not like they've been standing still. They've been adapting in, in, to each other. Uh, and so that's, that's how they matter in that sense. They, they matter because they're, holding, they're kind of stalemating each other and adapting to each other. It's interesting you mentioned the sort of dead heat that's kind of been there since the beginning because I find that it's, it's really hard to say with any certainty who's going to win this election, and I don't want to really get into that. But one thing that I think we can say for certain is, you know, it's quite likely that when this is all over, the next government of Canada will be holding a minority share of the seats in the House of Commons. Um, minority governments in Canada aren't necessarily an anomaly. They're not at the same time super common, but they're definitely viewed with a little bit of scrutiny. So I was wondering, why is minority such a dirty word, so to speak, when it comes to governance in Canada? And what does the prospect of another minority government mean for important issues facing Canadians like cost of living or the battle against climate change? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think minorities are not always a dirty word. <clears throat> um, I think, you know, by definition, no party wants a minority. They want a majority. They want to run things for their own way. Um, I think you know, the, the, the greatest drawback of minorities, I think it's often pointed out, is, is the, uh, the instability. 
that you never quite know what's going to happen. Uh, there's often the looming threat of election and the parties often um, play, well, play games really. And, and um, there's a lot of brinkmanship with each other. And so uh, the, the downside of the minority situation is always that the parties are, are inevitably, they're playing chicken with each other a lot. Uh, and, and often trying to either make bargains or get the other to, to blink first. And it's all the parties, not just the government there. And so I would say that sort of the, the combative parliamentary atmosphere uh, increases under minorities, where the parties are really always trying to outmaneuver each other. Uh, whereas in the majority situation, you know, <laughs> the lines are a little clearer. You, you, you basically know what, what's, what's likely going to happen. Uh, everyone's place is more um, solidified that way. So majorities are, majority, uh, majority governments are generally not as unpredictable and raucous. And you, you don't see the same level of, uh, of brinkmanship and outmaneuvering uh, each, each other uh, that, that, that we've seen over the last year in, in this, in this uh, government here. Um, so they've got a bad reputation that way, but certainly minorities can be very effective. And there's many people that argue, in fact, that minority government is preferable uh, in Canadian politics because it means that a government cannot simply uh, govern with a majority of seats, but a minority of votes, which is normally the case. Most governments, they have a majority of seats, but they only have about 40% of the vote. Uh, so minority governments force governments to work with other uh, parties uh, to bargain and get more support. And presumably that means that there's more consensus about policies, that um, a greater diversity of views is, uh, is, is put in place, that the, um, the deals and outcomes ultimately reflect um, the preferences of a greater number of Canadians, uh, because you know, the parties have the parties have to, the government has to make a deal with other parties. So, uh, and and I, I guess I'd also say that the most common sorts of deal making we see usually are between the Liberals and NDP historically. Uh, there, so often it can be argued that minority governments tend to be more progressive. Uh, that often the NDP, which has never governed federally, but they have propped up minority governments, uh, the NDP can extract uh, more of its uh, goals through minority than it can with the majority government. I mean, even with the Harper government thing, Mr. Harper certainly did make some deals with the NDP over the, over the course of his, his minority governments there. So all I have to say is that you know, minorities, I mean, I, I, I'm, I have a very neutral view of minorities myself. I think that they have obvious strengths and weaknesses. Um, I think they are, they are unstable. And uh, I think often there is, there's just too much, too much games and too much brinksmanship. Uh, that, but they, they can be more responsive. The, the government and particularly the prime minister and cabinet can't just sort of sail away, you know, secure in their majority. They have to listen more to the other parties. And, you know, that obviously can be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, great policy outcomes have come of that in the past. You know, the tentpole of Canadian policymaking, you know, socialized yeah. healthcare came from a minority government, right? Yeah, so I mean, yeah, in the 1960s, particularly, um, that was minority was normal way of business. And, you know, the Pearson government, Lester Pearson never got a majority government. Uh, he had two minorities, but Lester Pearson is often seen as the most effective prime minister in Canadian history because he was he was good at making deals, and uh, he was able. To, and that was certainly a time of tremendous uh, policy making uh, for Canada, where it's you know whether it's Medicare, you know, the Canadian flag, uh, and also uh, the Canada Pension Plan. All sorts of outputs came out of that minority situation. It's interesting though you mentioned Pearson because he was such a great deal maker, and he was able to traverse multiple minorities. But we're now potentially falling into the second minority in the row, and I can't help but wonder if confidence might be an issue moving forward, especially since you know we heard overtures from Jagmeet Singh about potentially supporting or working with the Conservative Party. Do you think holding the confidence of the legislature is going to be a tough task for the next Prime Minister of Canada? And what do you think the outcomes might be if they can't? Um, it's hard to say until we see the uh, 
the election results. I mean, the, the certainly, you know, based on what we're, we're talking now on Thursday, the polls uh, do probably indicate a minority government um, of either liberals or conservatives there, but we don't know what the exact numbers are going to be. And if you look back minorities, particularly uh, under um, Paul Martin in 2004 and Stephen Harper's first minority in 2006, uh, those are particularly unstable minorities because the um, um, the uh, there was there were four parties in the legislature and the number of seats didn't uh, only worked for the government if they had two parties. You know, I explain a little more closely to say that, for example, Paul Martin Paul Martin's Liberals had I forget the exact number of seats, uh, but in the NDP had a certain number of seats and together the Liberals and NDP still didn't quite add up to a majority. So the Liberals can make deals with the NDP. But they still, and it's very short, they want even one or two seats. They needed other deals to make further, uh, to really get ahead. And that was the same with Stephen Harper's first, first government, is that the, um, uh, the, the numbers didn't necessarily add up. So all I'm saying is that, we're in contrast, I should say, it's getting a little complicated, but in contrast, uh, under Mr. Trudeau's minority, um, the Liberals plus the NDP had enough seats <laughs> to prevail in a, in a majority, so they could govern solely with NDP support. So I'll also say is that we don't know at the moment uh, now, not only how, much, how many seats the Conservatives and Liberals are going to get on election night, but how many are the, are the Bloc going to get and the NDP? And that's going to influence the bargaining going on. And um, frankly, the, the, the harder it is for the governing party to make a deal with only one party, the harder it is for them to, to, to keep the confidence of the House of Commons. And so going back to Paul Martin in 2004, that was a very raucous House of Commons because Mr. Martin, you know, didn't have, he didn't have the numbers, even with the NDP. Uh, and so uh, he was defeated many times. There was some real, there were some really spectacular non-confidence votes uh, there. And Paul Martin in the end did uh, lose a non-confidence vote after, after about 18 months, 17 months there. So um, I'll, I'll say that I, I would actually say that Mr. Trudeau's minority has been fairly stable by the standards of minority governments uh, because he's been able to make deals. Uh, but uh, the numbers are different election night. It might, it might be a lot more unstable. And we might see sort of much like the Paul Martin situation where every, every day you weren't quite sure if the government was going to survive. Oh, fingers crossed because we don't get another election anytime soon. So as you know, my research is concerned with the changing nature of political discourse and engagement. And it seems this election campaign, it's really been marred with examples of how that discourse is perhaps changing for the worse. You know, whether it's the harassment that candidates and their staff have to endure campaign stops, you know, signs being defaced, and even the prime minister himself being pelted with gravel and stones. It seems that you know, the political climate in the context of this election is you know, perhaps more divided than it has been in recent memory. So what do you think accounts for this increased polarization and what sort of things can be done to mitigate it moving forward? Well, it's, it's odd because I feel that in this election, in some ways, there's actually less polarization in some ways. Uh, and again, if you look particularly between the two major parties, liberals and conservatives, um, there certainly are disagreements on issues, um, you know, name, whether it's climate change or gun control or uh, child care or things like that there. But I would suggest that there, there's not huge clashes in philosophies between the conservatives under Mr. O'Toole uh, and the liberals under Mr. Mr. Trudeau, uh, particularly because O'Toole has certainly moved more towards the center than his predecessors that way. And O'Toole seems almost eager to not polarize on issues, gun control being, I think, the best example, where uh, he actually changed the party position on, on assault guns um, in, a, in a very muddled way. But I mean, the point there was that he, he didn't want to fight. He didn't want to have a polarization 
on on gun issues. And suddenly O'Toole doesn't really want to he doesn't really want to fight on climate on climate change or things like that there. Uh, I see Mr. Stoke does. He wants to try and emphasize a contrast there. But also to say is that you know compared to previous elections, certainly if you look at say Stephen Harper versus Justin Trudeau in 2015, we're not seeing really different um, philosophies of the role of government, the level of taxes, the level of public spending and things like that. Uh, the way. Um, and so again, you can certainly look at differences, but comparatively speaking, I wouldn't say there's a great polarization between the two major parties and the other parties as well. I'd say the, the NDP is, is um, you know, fairly, uh, has not really um, fought a great deal on the issues to distinguish itself from others. Uh, the bloc is always certainly a bit different because it reflects uh, Quebec's opinion. So there's maybe a little polarization there, but that reflects genuine differences between Quebec and the rest of Canada. Um, where we do see obviously profound polarization is in one of the other parties, the People's Party of Canada, and as you said, the um, uh, the attacks on, particularly on the Prime Minister. We've seen pelt of the stones, as I said, uh, uh, dogged with protesters at multiple um, uh, stops. And so there's huge polarization going there, but it is a relatively minor part of the overall electorate. You know, the, the People's Party is, you know, they're, they're polling at six or eight percent, which is higher than ever, but it is still only six or eight percent of the election, and the people showing up and and, and disrupting uh, the 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 the, uh, the prime minister's events with uh, violent talk and violent actions, um, again reflect a fairly small segment of the population. So um, I, I would say in in the big picture, I'd actually say there's there's actually less polarization going on here. There's sort of consensus, which you know may, may be good or bad depending on how much you you like sort of the consensus there, uh, but there is on the other hand certainly a concerning minority. That is very alienated and very angry and downright violent at times uh, against this larger consensus. And um, it's much smaller than what we see in the United States, because the United States is just completely divided, really, between two different philosophies and ways of life, basically. Uh, one led by Donald Trump and Republicans, and led by the Democrats there. Um, here in Canada, it's much more marginal. And certainly, I, I do fear that the small, say, 6 8% that uh, favor the People's Party, that are very angry, very violent at times. Um, I do worry that that could grow in Canada. I don't think it's going to grow to the proportions you see in the United States for various reasons. Um, but it is so that polarization is really is real, and and that's unusual in Canadian politics. We've really had that sort of stark minority group completely alienated from the general consensus um, that or we we have, we have sort of polarized elections between the two major parties sometimes, but not this area where it's relative consensus in, in, in the middle, but this very alienated group on the far right. That's and that that's certainly a concern. So the last question is the sort of line of question on the election I want to ask is I'm going to ask for a prediction, but not the prediction you're probably thinking of. We started off talking about how this was kind of an election that no one really wanted, other than perhaps the Liberal Party, and perhaps they're having buyer's remorse at this point. And I think the prospect of having another election is something that no one really is looking forward to. So the prediction, do you think that election, the, the 45th election, is it four years off? Is it two hmm. years off? Is it a couple of months off? And in terms of like the key issues, in terms of leadership, what do you think that election might look like? It's, it's hard to say. Um, and again, much depends on the outcome in election night, particularly in the exact numbers configuration to the parties uh, in, in the House of Commons. Um, so we don't, we do like, getting back to what I said earlier about minorities, minorities are inherently unsta unstable. So if we get a minority government Monday night, and 
that is my assumption, um, it's going to be unstable. And so we are going to be asking <laughs> right from the start, really, when will the next election be? Because um, you know, the, the government can fall on a vote of non-confidence. Um, the government may decide to pull the plug early and call an election, as Mr. Trudeau did this year and as Mr. Harper did in 2008, despite the Fixed Election Act, Act in both cases. So um, it's, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's really hard to speculate. But I would say certainly the, the configuration of numbers in the House of Commons will certainly uh, be an in, influence sort of how, how stable things are going to be. Um, I'd also say that it's, you'd, you'd like to think that Mr. Trudeau might, assuming he gets reelected uh, in a minority or that, um, he might be chastened by holding what is arguably an unnecessary election. Like that. It, it is, it's kind of weird that he called the election given that the liberals were not clearly leading in the polls. Um, he was criticized a lot for an unnecessary election, and I think you know you can argue quite strongly that we didn't we didn't really need an election. Parliament was working about as well as it does in a minority situation, um, and of course it didn't. It's not like they changed things there. So it'll be interesting to see whether Mr. Trudeau or say Mr. O'Toole uh, down the line is is careful to not call an election because it will be seen as unnecessary. And look what happened in 2021. Um, but that that's hard to say because every every election um, happens for its own reasons. Um, if you look back in history, I mean, the, the, the parallel that I think that is most striking here, I think, is in Ontario in the 1970s. This is, you know, fairly, this is old and obscure. Um, but in the 1970s, Bill Davis was the premier of Ontario, the recently de uh, departed Bill Davis. And uh, Davis had a minority from 75 to 77, uh, which he governed with the support of the NDP. And Davis then called an election in 1977, obviously hoping to get a majority after two years. So very similar to what Mr. Trudeau has done now. Two years of a minority, I'm tired of this, I want a majority, as did Pierre Trudeau in 1974 federally. Uh, but Bill Davis did not get his majority in 1977. He got another minority. <laughs> and, and Bill Davis then, um, I guess, you know, maybe chastened decided that he's got to work with this. And so that, that 1977 Ontario government lasted for four years until 1981. Bill Davis lived with a minority government for a total of six years then. And you know, there's various factors for that. This was a long time ago. But certainly the, the, the longstanding wisdom is that Bill Davis was chastened, that he realized that he, you know, he, he tried to go too early, like that he got slapped back by the electorate. He was not going to try again until it was time. And so he waited four full years to call an election again, and then he, he got a majority, so it worked out for him that way. Um, so and I think you know that's the kind of the scenario we're looking at here, where let's say the prime minister does get a, minor, a minority Monday night, his hands been slapped by the electorate though, saying like, you know, <laughs> we're not giving you that majority that you wanted and stuff, you moved too early, you know, you unnecessary there. Mr. Trudeau might, might well decide, well, I gotta slog it out for four long years here now before I get in another election and things there. Um, so that's a possibility. But again, I'll go back to saying we really don't don't know. And a lot depends on the stability of the parliament, who's elected and the numbers there, and then how the government is is received. Because let's say let's say a government does get a minority government, uh, either liberals or or conservatives. And a year from now, they're doing really well in the polls. They're popular. They're everyone's happy with them and stuff. It's pretty good like that. I think it'd be pretty hard for them not to try and call an election to uh, to convert that popularity into majority government there. So, so the answer the answer to your question is is quite simple. It's I don't know, and no one else does. <laughs> Fair. Now, you know, Bill Davis just a short word on. Yeah, I'm from Brampton. I, I that's where I did high school, and he's a person of such great revere. There, you know, was a pillar of the community as well. Yeah, someone we we look well upon because you know 
he took mm -hmm. a minority government and made the most of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I think Bill Davis and Bill Davis had particular styles of leadership that that worked for a minority government, I'd say. Um, and Mr. Trudeau has a different style of leadership. I don't think I don't think Pierre Trudeau really enjoyed minority government too much, having to bargain with other parties. I don't think his son really does either. So minority government, that's something we talk about minority governments gen generally. It depends on the leadership. It depends on the prime minister or premier's um, working style and, and political style, or whether they, they like really working with others is the best way of putting it, because in a minority, you have to work with others. Yeah, an essential skill. So the last question I want to ask is really just what have you been up to? I know you took a sabbatical last year, got some writing done, but you know, mm -hmm. a lot of changes and transitions going on. So just want to check in with Dr. Malloy and see what's going on in your world. Tell us about your work. Well, thanks. Well, I, uh, yeah, so I, I did have a sabbatical last year. I was able to get some writing projects done. I have a manuscript now under review uh, and I'm working on a a grant, a grant proposal at the moment. Um, I would say that a lot of my time is taken at the moment with uh, some new responsibilities as the Associate Dean Research International for the Faculty of Public Affairs, uh, which is an exciting new job. I'm quite, quite uh, excited about it. It's a chance to help um, uh, facilitate and, and really increase uh, and support the, the research activity of the Faculty of Public, public Affairs, particularly uh, the faculty members, but also everyone, graduate students, and everyone involved in F FPA. Uh, so and then we've got a great team in the Dean's office. So we really, we do a lot to support uh, the grant activity of, of faculty and to uh, find find new ways uh, for faculty to uh, increase increase the, re the research productivity, uh, to balance it with their teaching, uh, and generally um, you know, increase the impact of the Faculty of Public Affairs. So that's, been quite, that's been quite interesting. It's obviously a little odd under COVID, uh, because so much research has been restricted, a lot of you know, a lot of people have really not been able to uh, conduct the research at all because of, of work, working from home, childcare issues, uh, just the general impact of the pandemic. So we're trying to support people in that way, uh, and then also, of course, uh, the other part of the portfolio is international. And uh, international obviously was a little different when, you know, basically we can't really travel uh, outside of Canada. We can't really welcome international visitors uh, to campus. Um, so uh, there's a lot of innovative stuff doing, obviously, but using, using remote technology to try and overcome some of that and try and if, if people aren't actually traveling internationally, we can at least infuse more international thinking perspectives uh, in Carleton and, and engage, uh, engage internationally ourselves there. So that's, that's, that's a fun area that I'm really, I'm really working on. Um, I'll just conclude to say also that I am, of course, still the Bell Chair in Canadian Parliamentary Democracy. So I do have some interesting activities going on. We have we have a we have a, a panel discussing the election, of course, in, in just in a week on Thursday, September 23rd at 2:30 p.m. Uh, with my colleagues Bill Cross and Aaron Tolley. So that's a Bell Chair event. Uh, we have uh, some other speakers probably coming up coming up in the fall as well. Uh, and I'm hosting a um, legislative research workshop in October for people uh, who's, who do, whose primary area is legislative research in Canada. We're going to have a, a workshop. I wish I wanted it to be in person. That's obviously not practical. So it's going to be an online workshop in, in October where about, about 20 of us that just love studying legislatures are going to spend an afternoon uh, really nerding out on legislatures, basically. So uh, I'm excited about that. And, you know, the other 19 people are no one else, but we are. Really, sometimes that's all that matters. But I mean, the event next week for the Bell Chair sounds fantastic. Professor Tolley, Professor Cross, both two exceptional professors of uh, Canadian politics. So I, I will definitely be attending that. Great. Great to see you there. Okay. Well, I thank you again for taking time to do this. I, I know you've got a lot going on, a lot of media appearances over the next few days, but really appreciate you taking the time to do this episode with me. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, so it's, it's, I think this podcast series is great. It's great to be participate in it again and a chance to, to talk talk about these issues. And of course, I enjoyed listening to the other, pod, other podcasts and hearing what other people are doing in their work as well. 
Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore poly sci, on Instagram at CU underscore poly dot sci, and on Facebook at carltonu.polysci.